I'm Chris Runge, and this is Study Hall. Welcome to Study Hall, the podcast dedicated to getting a little bit smarter about advertising. What's up, Study Hallers? I'm going to get right to the point. Last month, I said Frenemies by Ken Oletta was a pretty good book, uh, and I'd like to revise that for you today. I'm going to call it a tragedy of a book, and what I mean by that is it's a great idea, but unfortunately, it came to grief because of a single tragic flaw, poor execution, or laziness and a side order of insularity. Anyway, I really wanted to like this book more than I did, but you know, as I was struggling with the second half of the book, the conclusion is inescapable. It could have been so much better. Than, uh, than it ended up being. To elaborate, the great idea is that advertising dollars drive creation of culture. Aletta starts the book with the metaphor of cars and oil to explain the relationship between advertising, the oil, and cars, the media. So we're in a situation now where the relationship between the cars and the oil is changing dramatically. And in a worryingly large number of cases, has actually broken down and isn't, isn't working anymore at all. And we're trying to figure out, is it the oil that's changed or is the, uh, the oil's not working as well as it used to? Are the cars changing? Are we going to keep driving cars? Are we going to start riding bicycles? And that all sounds like kind of an academic exercise until you remember that these cars, right, this media, is how we get our news how we form our culture, getting together and having something to talk about, to agree on, to disagree on, to have a life around. It's a very big deal, not just because we make our living with cars and oil, but because in a really important way, our lives are dependent on this relationship and this dynamic continuing to work. That's a great beginning for a book. Unfortunately, Frenemies suffers from some very poor execution, both on a technical and on an intellectual level. Technically, most of the chapters are quite poorly organized. There's lots of dead ends, thoughts start and stop, the writing wanders around from event to event, and information is widely spaced apart. And because the information is spaced apart, important connections don't get made. Uh, and then there's some, ob- there's some things in there that are obviously wrong. It gives you the impression that nobody read this book very carefully after it got drafted. It doesn't feel like a book that went through a lot of drafts, and that's a shame because had this book been worked on hard, it would have been a really important, excellent book in the mold of a attention merchants, like a canonical work that you can't really ignore. Whereas, unfortunately, I think Frenemies is a couple of levels down from that. You probably should read it, but it's not going to be a book people are talking about in 10 years. The other, the intellectual tragic flaw is that this book is missing an entire faction of the media industry and by extension, the advertising industry. It's missing the alt-media, and it really needs to address the alt-media, the Tim Pools, the Sticks, Hex, and Hammers, the Alex Jones, yes, Alex Jones, the Joe Rogans, meme culture. It's all missing, and as we'll go through in these chapters, he gets into this. He gets into, for instance, he gets into the election of Donald Trump and wrings his hands in a coastal media establishment kind of way. How could we have gotten this so wrong? And the answer is you got it wrong because none of you were paying attention to the alt media and what the alt media was saying. And how everyday people, people in flyover country, were relating to the alt media. It was all there. And unfortunately, it's all been missed. And you can't really, you can't really duck it by saying 
it was too soon after the election for him to get his arms around this. It's just not good enough. You can't look at what's going on in advertising and you can't look at what's going on in media and the business structures that underpin media sales without looking at what's going on in the alt media. Because the key thing that's happening is the old establishment media is beginning to fall away really mostly because of things that they've done to themselves. They're dying from a self-inflicted wound, in my view. Their credibility has been leached away by their own corruption. And they're being replaced by a newer, much more complex and difficult to understand set of media outlets, but, but media outlets that are doing better than they are at attracting public attention. And the public interacts with those media outlets differently, and you'd have to monetize and track attention differently in those outlets. Many of those outlets have different business models, and so there's a difference in the advertising they'll accept. It's not enough to say we just have these people on YouTube and on Facebook. I think it's a good deal more complicated than that. For instance, some are wary of the corrupting influence of corporate money, and so they they won't accept it. They sell products associated with the outlet. That model is catching on. And he misses that. You'll spend weeks and weeks, like I did, reading Frenemies, and you'll never catch a whiff of these non-establishment media figures. They're totally absent. And it took me a while before I realized there's something missing in this book. What's missing? And then, of course, it dawned on me, oh, there's no discussion of what's, what's really happening in media, which is there's a new kind of media on the rise. So let's try a metaphor. The book is sort of feels like the account of people in a castle that's under siege. And they're describing what the siege is like from the inside of the castle. But to really understand the siege in a serious way, you're going to need to go outside the castle and you're going to need to talk to the guys that are besieging the castle. And Aletta makes no attempt to, to talk to those people. Andy misses some pretty key inside the castle people too. In the author's note, he says, well, I didn't want to talk to Google because I talked to them in this other book and, and I wanted to switch it up a bit, which I think is not a convincing reason not to speak to one of the biggest, if not the biggest, media outlet in the world. So, yeah, maybe you want to switch it up a bit, but let's try to remember that we're <laughs> doing journalism here ostensibly. And maybe it would be good to get their perspective on it, not just the Facebook perspective. So unfortunately, the book all too often descends into sort of gossip or sales material, really, for MediaLink. And to get into what Tim Wu said about him on the cover, Wu said that Ken Aletta is the Bob Woodward of media journalism. And I found myself wondering, was Tim Wu being a little bit sly here in that, you know, he's comparing Aletta to probably the most famous establishment political journalist that there is. My take on it is at one time, you know, Bob Woodward was the standard for journalism. He was the Woodward and Woodward and Bernstein that took down Nixon or helped to take down Nixon. But since then, he's kind of become a stenographer to power. And you read, I'm told, although I, I don't read Bob Woodward, but I have read reviews of and commentary on his work. And the commentary I've read is, you know, if you want to find out what's going, what the establishment position is on something, you read Bob Woodward. And unfortunately, I think it's affected Woodward's credibility as a journalist. And I think, unfortunately, you can criticize a letter for the same reasons. You get a very inside-the-castle view, and especially with what's going on now. If you want to understand what's going on in 10 years, um, you probably need to talk to the guys outside the castle because they're very shortly going to be inside. And shortly after that, maybe there'll be no castle at all. Getting back to the whole idea of the book and and what Frenemies has to teach us, Frenemies can 
talk to us a little bit about what's going on today in what we call advertising and marketing, which is the transfer of commercially flavored information. And that commercially flavored information is being passed around in a world where information, all of information, has burst its old banks. It's not a highway. Kenaletta is credited with coining the phrase information superhighway. And so just to continue that metaphor, it's not a highway anymore. It's an off-road free-for-all. It's kind of like Mad Max, right? We're all driving around in the desert shooting at each other. And the scope of this book needed to be much, much wider. Kenaletta is still, still talking about as, as if this was a network of highways. And like I say, in fact, we're all trying not to get killed by humongous out here. Again, to take him to task, he even gets at this at the subtitle of the book, right? He, he understands that the disruption that's happening in advertising is much, much bigger than just advertising. It's media, it's culture. In the Tim Wu sense, it's about how our consciousness operates in the modern world, which in a lot of ways is what it means to be human. And the book just falls far short of this initial important and very interesting question. It's a shame because I really wanted to like this book. In the end, I guess it boils down to this. You can't not read this book. There's some really important information and, and even a few interviews that you couldn't really get anywhere else. Kenaletta does have a lot of access and that does matter. But expect to work super hard to get anything out of it because it's so poorly organized. Expect to be a little bit nervous because you're going to run across things that are patently wrong. Expect to, at the end of it, be not a whole lot better off than you were at the beginning, unless you, as I say, are prepared to put in, I've read this book six times, I think, you're prepared to put in a great deal of work and, and basically reorganize the book for yourself. All right, so let's get at the structure of the book a little bit. So we're, of course, talking about the second half of the book, and in the second half of the book, we spend some time, the first couple of chapters, talking about more frenemies of the advertising agency. And then we kind of get into some journalism about how the frenemies interact, and we go through a couple more, a couple, three more chapters about how the frenemies are interacting, and we see some really pretty appalling behavior. And then we get into some prognostication in the final chapters. Let's move to chapter 11, Can Old Media Be New? And Can Old Media Be New is a really good reality check. The basic headline should have been, old media is still there, especially television, and it is not in any sense out. It's really easy to get into the head of digital is everything and television is old hat, and that's just not the case. And the person through whom Aletta tells us this story is Les Moonves, another fallen titan, actually, in the meta story of how fast things are changing in this business. Like Sorrell, Moonves was swept away a couple of years ago now, and no one really speaks his name aloud anymore. That doesn't mean that his insights into the business are wrong. It's just, you know, just to say that's how fast things are changing. So we meet Moonves in 2015, 2016. He's resuscitated CBS and he's gotten it to 50% of non-advertising revenue, which is a really big deal given the fact that the old model of media is I have a media property, I gather eyeballs, I sell space in my media property so that you can reach those eyeballs. Moonves has figured out a way to get CBS 50% away from that model. And Part of it is selling content to people like Netflix and the cable companies, which are frenemies. And there's some interesting, there's the start of some interesting commentary in there about how he took advantage of the Cable Act, which required cable companies to compensate networks for the shows that the networks produced, and the abolition of the financial interest and syndication rules, known as FinCEN, which freed networks to both own and sell programs. I ended up wanting to know more about how that all went down, because it feels like 
that might have been a strategic initiative undertaken by Moonves and other people in the TV business. But in an example of why this book, I call this book a tragedy, it just sets down and we never learn anything more about it. But what we do learn more about is Les Moonves, who is an optimistic guy. He's a businessman and a showman, sort of like a Bill Paley come again. And there's a quote in the book by someone who worked at CBS saying, you know, we've had businessmen, we've had showmen. Moonves is a businessman and a showman. And then we get into some background information on Moonves, which I, I don't I didn't find interesting or terribly relevant. Although it's interesting to note that Moonves started out as an actor and then he moved over to the business side. And then we kind of transfer over to the business model when Aletta kind of says, you know, you'd have to waterboard the showman meaning Moonves, in order to get him to admit that there are clouds on the horizon. And then we get into the clouds. Advertisers are moving from traditional media, meaning television, nudged again by Michael Kassan, who, who again shows up in this chapter like he does every other, I think, I think every other chapter in the book. So Kassan and other people are nudging their clients and advertisers, and, and advertisers are figuring, figuring this out for themselves, by the way. Advertisers are moving to other venues and other, you know, the digital, the digital space and other spaces, and ad space is less valuable, and viewers are leaving. And we kind of get to a very interesting vignette, the ESPN vignette. Let me set the stage for you. So in 2015, ESPN is losing subscribers and the head of Disney kind of says in this spitball-y way, well, you know, eventually we're not even going to be in cable bundles. We're going to stream directly to end users and we're not even going to we're not even going to deal with cable because it's too expensive. The cable pricing model is ridiculous, as we all know. And with people falling off and cutting the cord and not using cable as much, ESPN has to think to itself. And Disney, the parent company of ESPN, has to think to itself, well, how are we going to maintain this as a viable commercial enterprise? So streaming over the web becomes the answer. And of course, Wall Street overreacts. The Disney price gets crushed. All the media company prices get crushed because everybody thinks, oh my God, it's the end of media. Uh, as we know it, we're all going to be streaming everything on the web. It's going to be a nightmare. Turns out to not be true for a variety of reasons, but we get to laugh at the expense of Wall Street. I thought it was a cheap laugh because I think that that really is a huge problem. Again, Inside the castle, it doesn't seem like streaming is going to be a big deal or, or you know, this idea that you could either subscribe to an individual channel stream or you could do Patreon with somebody and get your news from that person because you respect their approach or buy their merchandise like you can with Tim Pool. It just doesn't, doesn't get mentioned. Not in this chapter anyway. So in counterpoise to this, we meet David Poltrack, who's the chief research officer of CBS. I actually liked Poltrack a lot, and I wanted to hear more from him. But in a very scholarly way, he kind of says, well, actually, you know, the, the people cutting the cord, that's not a, a sea change. That's just young people being young people. They always do this. And, and eventually, this demographic, the millennials that everybody's trying to talk to, they're going to start to behave just like the baby boomers. And then he sort of moves into a, a refreshing call for better advertising. He says, stop annoying people. And a nuanced view of how people consume ads. Discussing the two-screen dynamic, which we're all very familiar with because we all do it. You're sitting there watching TV. You've got your smartphone or your tablet out. And you're doing both things at the same time. And you don't, you know, you're not really paying attention, but you're also not filtering. Or you're not filtering very hard. And there's an opportunity for an ad to slip through. There's a, there's a weird parallax that happens, I think, a lot of times, all too often in marketing and advertising, where you imagine that the consumer is doing one thing at a time, when you know that you're never doing one thing at a time, and nobody you know is ever doing one thing at a time. And so you, can, you have a little leeway to be intrusive and annoying, and, and maybe, yes, even boring in advertising, because uh, people will do something else, and they'll kind of half consume your message, and you know what? That's enough. 
that's enough. And that's something that you don't hear enough, especially out of creatives. But also you don't hear enough generally. And you can call me a hack if you want. So, and then Poll Track kind of comes out and says, more people are watching TV than ever, although ratings are lower. And that's, a, that's interesting foreshadowing because there's a discussion later in the chapter about how digital companies sort of fool around with their stats to try to suggest that they're better. They've got more eyeballs, but actually, once you dig into it, it turns out to be false. But again, Aleta doesn't turn this into a discussion of statistics and the battle of statistics, which is a real thing, and which is really going on. He just kind of throws that away and moves on to something else and and then you have to sort of put the two things together, like I'm going to do for you later on in my commentary on this chapter. And then we kind of meditate on how do you create mass culture without advertising revenue with the interesting factoid that programming on national television networks can cost about $10 million an hour, which is, which is interesting. And underlines the fact that if you're going to be doing television production like CBS does television production, and again, perfect opportunity to talk about how people are actually doing television production, how people are actually doing video production. You can get into a discussion about television versus video. Everybody wants to consume video and you don't have to spend $10 million an hour to make it. Again, total missed opportunity. Doesn't discuss it. It's a, it's a, it's a shame. And then there's a sort of an interesting little bit that you can, you can kind of incorporate into your discussions with clients. You know, TV is big, but it lacks good measuring tools where digital has the potential for excellent measurement, potential keyword for excellent measurement if it's done right. The problem though is Nielsen ratings... TV, you can be sure that you're, or you can be pretty sure that you're buying what you think you're buying in terms of thousands of impressions, right? CPM. Whereas when you go buy ads on Facebook, say, just to pick on Facebook, but really any digital medium, you are not, there's no Nielsen for that. And so you have to be a little bit more critical about what they tell you you're buying and whether you're actually buying it. So the auditing bit of it's on you. Tim Poole recently did an interview with Joe Rogan that covers this, and I'll link to that in the show notes. It's excellent. And here's another example of Aletta missing a real opportunity to get into a great discussion. Instead, it's sort of placed in the center of the chapter and you're kind of left, you kind of think, oh, that's pretty interesting. And that was pretty cool that David Poltrack said that, but what, how does this all fit together? So then we get into a discussion about Netflix. Netflix is doing great, partly due to ad fatigue, right? So back now we're back sort of having a conversation with Poltrack and about good advertising or is it about too much of an ad load? In a, in a given program, right? Like every 60 minutes of programming, you've got to watch 20 minutes, I think, of ads. Is that too much? And they get into an interesting conversation about that in the chapter where they say, you know, you can drop the number of ads per hour and actually increase the value of ads. Then Aletta points out that Netflix only accounts for 50% of a 3% drop, right? So 1.5 percentage points in the year 2015. So 3% drop in TV viewership in 2015, half of that's attributable to Netflix, and you think that people are having a heart attack. Now, we're talking about large amounts of money. A 3% drop in TV viewership is an enormous number of people. However, looked at it from a percentage point point of view, which is always more telling than looking at absolute numbers, it's really not that big a deal. Anyway, so then we, we get into a discussion of YouTube and Facebook claiming they get more eyeballs than TV, but it's false. Like I said, there's no third-party measurement. Here again, the theme of digital measurement versus television measurement, but that never coalesces into a coherent discussion. And then we start talking about programmatic versus traditional upfronts. Now, if you're listening to this to get educated about advertising, I'm just going to let you know what upfronts are. So you got to think about advertising space as a commodity, which is how the media companies treat it. So there's a certain amount of media that attracts eyeballs Okay, and there's only a certain amount of time that you can get on that media to get in front of the eyeballs you need to get in front of. 
So it's a finite, fungible unit of eyeballs that you're buying. Think about it that way. And so what happens is at the beginning of the year, the media companies buy space on these programs and the programs get romanced and oh, these are gonna be great. They're gonna pull in all these eyeballs. People buy the space and then they turn around and sell the space to actual advertisers and media companies take a little bit off the top. They broker that transaction and so that's and that's how they make their money. At least I think that's right. If it's not, somebody write something in the comments and let me know that I'm wrong. So there's a moment in time every year where people are showing up and trying to figure out, they're trying to eyeball, pardon the pun, what the value of this time is going to be as the year progresses and make bets essentially about, or business decisions, which are often bets, about what's going to happen in the future and how valuable these things are going to be. So into this upfront dynamic comes this thing called the new front, which is the digital upfront, which is run by Richard Rothenberg, who we met refusing to shake hands with the ad blocker guy. And here's another example of what I'm talking about. Rothenberg's a very interesting guy. And I'm not going to get into why Rothenberg's interesting. Just go look at him on Wikipedia and you'll see, whoa, there's a lot more to this guy than meets the eye in frenemies. And just yet another example of what I'm talking about. Rothenberg is kind of like spread throughout the book, kind of like Rashid Tabakawala. And important connections just don't get made unless you make them yourself. So Rothenberg's running this new front which is the digital upfronts, and it's contrasted with the, up, the actual upfront, which is for television. So again, interesting factoid, uh, just to give you an idea of how important the upfronts are, most media, media companies buy about 80% of $9 billion worth of advertising from networks in this bid pricing scheme, an auction, essentially. And then they trade them, as I was saying, it's like a commodity, right? So they trade it in an aftermarket known as the scatter market. And as for whether you should be buying space on digital or on television, upfront versus newfront, Kassan says it's all about video and is channel agnostic. But then there's this quote on Judge Judy um, versus YouTube. And again, it belonged back when we were talking about Poltrack, was telling us about how you measure viewership. But anyway, we have to wait till later in the chapter to get to this really important quote about Judge Judy versus YouTube. Here's the passage from the book Dave Morgan. The CEO of Simul Media, a marketing technology company that designs targeted TV ad campaigns, says TV's ability to attract eyeballs far exceeds that of internet darlings like YouTube. Quoting Morgan, Judge Judy today in 30 minutes, he says, will deliver more seconds of advertising consumed by more people than all of YouTube will in all of America all day. One show. End quote. Aletta continues. Actually, more than YouTube delivers in an entire month, an RBC Capital Markets 2014 analysis reported. With 260 episodes per year, each containing 8 minutes of advertising for Judge Judy's 9 million daily viewers, an estimated 1.6 billion minutes of ads were offered viewers, or twice as many as the 830 million minutes of ads per month on YouTube. And the point is that Judge Judy, which a lot of people would turn their nose up and laugh at, Judge Judy delivers more eyeballs in a half an hour than YouTube does all day long. Now, it's a bit misleading because it's it's not just the number of eyeballs, but what eyeballs are being delivered, right? So Judge Judy's delivering a giant number of eyeballs, but are they the eyeballs you want? If you're an advertiser, of course, that's that's everything. In the battle of the titans that seems to be going on in chapter 11, can old media be new? The, the question isn't really, at least as far as Aletta goes, which again, may be a mistake. Maybe there needs to be a more nuanced discussion about what eyeballs are showing up where. And when, that's not in the chapter, 
it, it is interesting that he does call out that digital properties need to be very carefully audited because you can't always trust what they say about themselves. But it's never really followed up or taken seriously. And it needs to be taken seriously because it's important. If it's true, then it undercuts the conclusions of the entire chapter. If you're faced with a choice between an audited media property like network television audited by Nielsen, and you're trying to and you're trying to figure out whether to go there or to an untracked sort of Mark Zuckerberg world where you kind of have to go on what they tell you, then old media may, maybe doesn't even want to be new. Maybe new media is too risky. And in fact, we get into that right after where we learn that 2015 had been a really bad upfront. There, the market had been very soft. People weren't bidding high prices for television. And then there were a bunch of digital scandals, which we don't really get into too deeply, but people all went running back to television. And in the scatter market, in the aftermarket, prices went way up. So people got burned, essentially. They didn't buy when they had a chance to buy in the upfronts. And then when they needed to buy because they changed their they changed their minds and they wanted to change their media plan. They had to go into the scatter market. But by that time, prices had gone up 20% and the stuff they could buy for $100 in the upfronts, they were now paying $120 for. So 2016 ends up being a stronger upfront. And then we kind of get into this weird story, although it's hilarious, about how Hamilton pervaded the 2016 new fronts. You know, Hamilton became this sort of running joke. Everybody was doing Hamilton. And again, it doesn't really go anywhere. I mean, maybe it's there for color or something, but I, I, it seemed out of place. So then inexplicably, at the end of the chapter, he takes the strongest upfront in years in 2016, and he spins it as a failure. And he allows Michael Kassan in again to sort of say, well, it was a short-term win. The idea being that eventually television is going to go away and these new digital media guys are going to take over. Here's my problem with that. First, I think it cuts against a lot of the evidence in the chapter. And second, I think it gives undue weight to the opinions of Michael Kassan. Kassan is so invested in getting people to believe that the advertising world is in just complete upheaval and up is down. In a moment like the end of chapter 11, you really have to treat his quote very, very carefully. You probably shouldn't be using Michael Kassan. He's just so, like, what else would you expect him to say? It would have been news, right? Dog bites man. It would have been news if Kassan said, everybody's scared about the upfronts, but thank God in a constantly changing world, I really think TV is going to be here forever. Now that would be a newsworthy quote from Kassan, but it's just Michael Kassan talking his book again. You know, he's just he's just saying things that bolster his own business. So wh what's even the point of having him comment? Like I say, unless you're a stenographer to power. And unfortunately, chapter 11, while you can learn a lot from it, and, it's, and it, there's a lot of stuff in it if you want to interact with it and really study it and do research based off of the things that are said in it, you can really, you can learn a lot from the chapter. But that's got nothing to do with frenemies. That's just... That's just sort of following the issues that are raised by frenemies and, frankly, rather lazily and sloppily followed up on and poorly organized and then turning it into an opportunity for you to do extra research behind it and educate yourself. So we're going to speed it up and we're going to go through more frenemies here. And, and more frenemies is chapter 12, by the way. It's a laundry list with commentary of all the frenemies we didn't talk about in the other chapters. This chapter opens with the best line of the entire book and probably should have been the opening line of the entire book. Quote, the advertising business is being invaded from all directions, unquote. Great opening line, central theme of the narrative. But I think the, the book feels like a first draft. So like you would do if you were writing three or four drafts, you'd look at that and you'd move it up to the front. But here it is in chapter 12. So we meet the first set of 
afterthought frenemies, which are content creators that are media outlets as well. So somebody like the New York Times or Condé Nast. And also content purveyors, people like Google and Facebook who don't generally create content like the New York Times does or the Condé Nast magazine group does, publishing group, I should say, does. But they help you find it. So all of these people have an opportunity to be a middleman when delivering commercial messages. Because why couldn't the New York Times do their own advertising? Or could, or could they do some kind of like weird advertorial is the wrong word, but they could do some content creation uh, around commercial messaging. And why wouldn't they get the money from that? They could put together and, and have put together an internal creative group and, and, and seek to monetize that, right? And this is another another example of the interesting stuff you can learn in frenemies. Two trillion dollars spent on advertising world, worldwide, and most of it is not spent with ad agencies. It's spent on PR. It's spent on market research. It's spent on branding. It's spent on even things like lobbying. For instance, the lobbying that no doubt went on around rescinding the FinCEN regulations that allowed networks like CBS to become much more viable commercial entities again, which isn't mentioned in this chapter, which should have been. It feels like there could have been a little discussion. You could have put those two pieces together and had a little discussion, but we don't. But back to the main issue of news or cultural content creators getting into the commercial information passing business, that is information for hire. So this raises the issue of church and state. And, and I think this is, yeah, which is absolutely spot on. This is a scandal waiting to happen. And there's a nonsensical quote by Mark Thompson of the Times. Here's Thompson talking about T-Brand Studio, which is the New York Times content creation studio. T-Brand Studio is, quote, separate from the newsroom, close quote, says Times CEO Mark Thompson, insisting that the church-state barrier has not been breached. Much of the sales force is composed of former journalists, which he sees as a calling card. Quote, clients come to us wanting to work with people comfortable with the idiom of storytelling. They don't have that with the agencies, and the agencies are locked into formats. We have a group of people who are used to inventing new formats. We offer a more open-ended approach. I don't even know where to start. I'll just say that it sounds like Mark Thompson's never worked in an ad agency. And it sounds like he hasn't given much thought to the reasons why the legacy media isn't trusted by most people these days. A very inside-the-castle perspective. And the New York Times has had its share of influence problems. I mean, that you can talk about Judith Miller and the stories she wrote around 2003 that helped get us into the Iraq War, which turned out later to be, you know, basically planted by Scooter Libby. You could talk about Jason Blair, who made up stories and, and published them in the New York Times. I mean, those weren't paid for exactly. This is a different type of scandal if, if it turns out that somebody was paying the New York Times for, you know, quote, content creation, unquote. And then surprise, surprise, suddenly the New York Times started printing stories that were congruent with the point of view of the organization that was paying them for content. I think that would be a little bit of a problem, especially if you get into, I'll use an example from history, you know, sort of like a Mussolini figure. What if some obnoxious dictator were to show up and start paying the Times to create content for them, and then suddenly the Times either was silent on or started writing these kinds of uh, very complimentary pieces about this obviously odious human being. I think that's, that's just, I don't know. I just, I don't think it's worth it. And I think there was an opportunity to talk about how the establishment media has destroyed its own brand and, and get into the rise of the alt media and, and potentially alt 
I'm not really all advertising agencies because, again, I don't know that the advertising agency business model is going to survive alternative ways of doing advertising. And you could, like, like I said, you could go interview Tim Pool. Not that hard. He's not that hard to find. Joe Rogan interviewed him recently. You can go talk to Tim Pool about how Tim is running his operation and do a little breakdown of Tim's overhead costs and, say, Fox News's overhead costs and look at... Tim's broadcasting setup and contrast it with Fox News's broadcasting setup. I think that would have been very, very interesting. But of course, tragically, that opportunity um, passed by. So then next set of frenemies are consulting firms, which, haha, Douglas and Rungi, who are crushing it. We meet IBM's consulting firm called Z, and we learn how they solve business problems, then execute solutions. They talk about purchasing a weather service and then using the weather service to help clients deliver commercial messages when the weather is appropriate for those messages. So soup on rainy days, umbrellas on rainy days, sunscreen on sunny days. Simple but brilliant, but it's the kind of thing where, you know, an ad agency probably wouldn't have thought of that. You needed to be, you needed to sort of have the approach of IBM, which makes Watson and computers and our legitimate geniuses to affect that solution. Then we get into a really interesting discussion about pay, and this is a huge problem. It's going to destroy traditional agencies. Consultancies are paying more, period, paragraph, and that's, they're going to win the talent battle. And they also have a relationship with top management that the agencies, you know, in the lore of agencies used to have. Whether or not that's true, I'm not sure. Consulting firms have these relationships with C-suite people. And and it's not just about playing golf and going for drinks. They speak the language of the C-suite, which is data. If you are not having a conversation that is about something quantifiable, you are not having a conversation with C-suite people. Because management consultants understand that and they can speak that language, they have a huge leg up on advertising agencies. And it's and really, frankly, if you ask me, that's the reason why Cognizant and Deloitte Digital are doing so well, because they can just they can just roll in there, talk about solving a huge business problem and then turn around and say, oh, by the way, we have people that can execute the solution for you. And why in the world would you go anywhere else? There's another set of very dangerous frenemies who probably deserve their own chapter here again. How hard would it have been to get in touch with the heads of Deloitte, talk to the head of their advertising practice, and get and get their perspective? But here it is, stuck in the back of this afterthought chapter, even after Aletta had gone to Cannes and seen that they were huge players in the industry. Very underwhelming work. Another set of frenemies are startups. Um, basically, they get you out of the holding company dynamic, so you're not getting the upsell. You're not getting somebody trying to make up the money procurement took from them in the negotiating process by overcharging you for media. Then finally, internal ad shops. I'm a huge fan of internal ad shops. Check out on the blog. We have a little checklist to see if an internal ad shop would be right for you. Having run an internal ad shop, I can tell you that they are faster and much less expensive than an external shop, pretty much under every circumstance. And they probably are better brand stewards. So I think that this sort of leftover chapter 12, more frenemies, which is kind of like, you know, the catch-all chapter, there are at least two consulting firms and internal ad shops that deserve their own chapters if you want to talk about what's going on in advertising today. I think the content creators and the content purveyors, they're going to blow up. That's not going to work. There's going to be a scandal. Call me in 10 years and we'll see how they're doing. So then we depart really from the scheme of talking about frenemies and we move into a phase of the book which takes up pretty much the last few chapters of journalism on how the frenemies are interacting with one another. So in chapter 13, which is called Marketing Yak Yaks, 
and mounting fear, we sort of show up in the ad biz right before the K2 investigation is finalized on the rebate scandal that opened the book with John Mandel's explosive speech. And here again, Michael Kassan shows up again talking his book. We're weeks away from Armageddon, he says, referring to the K2 report release, which at this point, I wish Canaletta had challenged himself and said, is this really advancing the knowledge of the reader here? Or, or do we already know that Michael Kassan is making a ton of money off of telling people things like we're weeks away from Armageddon? Is this a good use of real estate in this book or not? And if I use this quote, and it's not a good use of real estate, will it appear that I'm a little bit too close to Kassan? Not improper. No, not, not saying that there's anything. I certainly don't know if there's anything improper going on. It just gives the appearance of maybe undue influence. And whether that undue influence is just due to uh, journalistic sloth, you know, I think that's probably the most likely explanation, honestly. And again, I have no knowledge about what's their relationship. So anyway, they're weeks away from Armageddon, and we open at the Consumer Electronics Show, and suddenly the CES, which I think everybody's heard of by that by now, because it's a it's a it's an A-list event these days, largely due to Michael Kassan. And now it becomes interesting. Kassan's presence becomes interesting because we get into how he helped transform the CES from a trade show to the place to be. And it went from basically being a floor-based show, and those are a lot of fun. You walk around, you look at all the cool stuff, to a meeting hub where people can align calendars and you can actually take a meeting with someone that it might be kind of hard to align with otherwise. And the way Kassan did it was pretty interesting. He traded influence, his influence, his connections, for a place at the show. And he made this giant, beautiful meeting out of that. He started getting people to come to the show and it sort of stopped being about the floor, and it started being about the meetings. And he created this giant kind of beautiful aquarium through which he swims. And it reinforces his connections, right? It's, it's, he's, he's clear. Kassan is worth profiling just for his business acumen and really his, and his resilience, which I think is a very interesting story. I, I ended up wanting to know a lot more about how he dealt with his troubles with the California Bar Association and his professional troubles. And, and then that, even that got short shrift, I thought. That would have made an interesting book in and of itself. You know, I feel like I'm being a little hostile to Kassan, and I don't really mean to come off like that. I'm just impatient with his presence in this story. By by this point in the book, I I was sort of saying to myself, I, yeah, I get it. I, I okay, I get it. Michael Kassan is the guide through all the yeah, I get it. Too much. So this tour de force by Kassan at the CES, which is about a frenemy too, right? I mean, delivering commercial messages is done how these days? Well, through consumer electronics. <laughs> And that's an undertone there. And then we, we leap from there to the um, American Association of Advertising Agencies meeting later in the year where they're just bracing for the report and they're talking about transparency. And we get into a kind of an interesting discussion of the word agency. You know, does it have a, does it, does agency mean what lawyers say it means or does agency mean, is agency just sales puffery? It's just a thing, an advertising agency is called an advertising agency and our media agency is called a media agency, but that's just, that's just a word. It's just a word that grew up out of common use and has no legal force, which is interesting. But we don't get to that yet. Then at the 4As meeting, we also start to encounter the Me Too movement. And actually, really, the proto-Me Too movement, the Gustavo Martinez scandal was beginning to break. And Martinez, if you guys don't remember him, was a really, if the allegations are to be believed, a horrible, horrible actor telling people he was going to take them in the bathroom and rape them. I mean, criminal stuff. If I was the Manhattan DA, I would be 
talking to the cops about going and interviewing people with a view to charging Gustavo Martinez with a criminal threat. But I guess they didn't do that. I don't, I don't remember. I honestly, I didn't bother following up that part of it. And then we get into kind of a contretemps between Maurice Levy of Havas, who tries to say this isn't everybody in the business, and then Martin Sorrell shows up and sucker punches him, essentially. Here again, I don't know why we were talking about this issue here. I think there has been a lot of abuse of power in advertising agencies across the board, one of the expressions of which is sexual harassment. But there are many, many abuses of power, and there's a kind of a crazy kind of self-involvement in advertising agencies where they have a hugely inflated idea of their own importance. There's a lot of arrogance, and it's a very exploitative business model. So is it any surprise when the people at the top are very exploitative? And then finally, I think the out-of-stepness of advertising with cultural sensitivity is a metaphor for its general out-of-stepness with business and with the world at large. And it might have integrated a little bit better if that had been the approach. But here it's just treated as a throwaway, and I, I don't know. It didn't seem to make sense there, and it also, it also got too short a shrift. And it really, it sort of just ended up being like, isn't Gustavo Martinez a monster? And yes, he does appear to be a monster. And don't Maurice uh, Levy and Martin Sorrell hate each other? And yes, they seem to really, really hate one another. Not exactly a surprise by this point in the book. So then we end the chapter with a very depressing meditation on the talent drain meaning the talent drain in advertising. And the talent drain has shown up a bunch of places, again, probably deserved its own chapter, but not only do, say, consulting firms pay much better, and so does Google and Facebook, by the way, but there was this academic study that came out that showed that 2,227 WPP employees left WPP to go work at Google and Facebook, and only 124 left Google or Facebook to go work at WPP. And then we bridge to this depressing but beautifully styled quote that advertising is increasingly run by the leftovers. And and by the way, Google and Facebook and, and everybody else are starting to realize that. They're sort of saying like, this is the gang that couldn't shoot straight. And if we can get our shit together just a little bit better than these clowns, we can get a hold of the massive amount of money that's running through the advertising business. That's a trend that if it continues will undoubtedly lead to the either end of advertising agencies, which I think is unlikely, or the end of advertising agencies as a worthwhile place to work, if you're a smart, ambitious, hardworking person. So then we encounter some brave voices like Rashid Tabakawala saying, who, again, another guy who deserved a lot more space in this book, in my view, sort of saying, don't count advertising agencies out. Then we sort of weirdly get into a discussion of Trump and how advertising and marketing people could have gotten it so wrong and if advertising really worked how come Hillary Clinton spent so much money on the 2016 election how did how come she lost if advertising is such an effective tool and then somebody says well you've got to understand that Donald Trump has an even stronger brand and I think that would have been the perfect place to go interview really anybody from alternative media or at least have a discussion about it but a tragic, again, there's that word, a tragic failure to do that on Kenaletta's part, and I think the book suffers for that. All right. Chapter 14 is entitled, The Client Jury Reaches Its Verdict. And it's actually a pretty good discussion about the K2 investigation and the issues that came up during the K2 investigation. I think this is one of the places in the book where it's, it's well worth your time to read it. I guess if I was teaching a course on this, I might do chapter one and chapter 14 and leave out a bunch of these other chapters. So in chapter 14, we learn one of the things we learned is that Michael Kassan had volunteered to conduct the investigation that K2 ended up conducting, which touched off in my mind a question, who is this guy? 
you know, this is essentially a declaration of war against his clients. And what's Michael Kassan really up to here? That was interesting. But unsurprisingly, by this time, not followed up on. And then we get into the K2 report itself. And the conclusion of the report is that there's a fundamental disconnect in the advertising industry regarding the basic nature of the advertising agency relationship with their clients. And there's the nub of the problem of a huge section of the book. Why are advertising agencies struggling so hard right now? Well, in the short term, it's this massive loss of trust because they are not acting as agents. They're, they're holding themselves out as agents. I think that's fair to say. And they're, they're not agents. They, they do not see themselves as agents. It's the K2 position versus the Erwin Gottlieb, who's the head of Sorrell's media div- division. That's Group M at WPP. K2 position is, you guys are agents. You said you were agents. You are legally agents of the people that contract with you. And Erwin Gottlieb saying, well, no, read the contract. We're not agents. So we learned that this has been going on for a long time. This is not a new issue, right? So on page 20... 241, we read this, this interesting quote. And again, you know, why was this not earlier in the book? It just feels, again, not to sound like a broken record. Couldn't this been flowed together better into a theme? Anyway, K2 concluded that cost pressure is a problem from the client side. The report also said that procurement has become too involved. It treats marketing as a cost, not as an investment, which we could get into a discussion about that some other time. But it does raise the, a letter raises the, raises the issue. Does that need to change? And then again, just sort of leaves it there. And the end of the day, though, the report turns out to have been very bad for agencies. They committed a kind of emotional fraud, I'll say, because they let their clients believe that they, the agencies, were doing business in the client's best interest when that wasn't true. K2 said it was criminal or civil fraud because the publicly traded companies didn't disclose their finances accurately. So there's that. They were making all these mon- all this money off of rebates and they were not disclosing that fact. And that's true. In a publicly traded company you're supposed to disclose your finances, right, Enron? And it was so bad that the head of the ANA said of the report that it's an opportunity to rebuild trust, right, which is a masterpiece of corporate nonsense. That's the kind of thing you say you say when you're standing over smoking ruins of your once great industry. And the next problem is they didn't name any names, which kind of laid a cloud over the entire industry. Where there are no bad actors, you can't figure out who the good actors might have been. So was everyone a bad actor? And then we get to this quote, which is finally a good reason to read this book. It's an exchange between Erwin Gottlieb, head of Group M, and Kenaletta. Gottlieb measures his words carefully, and his answers to questions arrive as if in slow motion. In his office, he was asked, does Group M receive rebates in North America? He waited seconds to answer before stating flatly, quote, zero rebates in North America, unquote. There followed another long pause before he continued, quote, We've been very clear, we are not an agency, unquote. If they were not an agent of the client, he was asked, were they a partner? Quote, I wish we were a partner. Ad agencies, when they were formed, acted like the seller's agent, not the buyer's agent. Look who paid the commission. It was the seller. Somehow it evolved into a relationship where there was an assumed fiduciary responsibility to the client. And so by the end of the chapter, we're at the very lowest end of um, an investigation where people are bragging no one's been indicted. But on the other hand, spending hasn't really dropped. But the feeling you get in the, at the end of the chapter is that this is an industry that is a dead man walking. And as soon as somebody can figure out a better way to handle this, they're going to go that direction. And of course, Michael Kassan uh, closes out the chapter sitting pretty, riding the chaos and mistrust and spinning it into gold. 
Then we come to chapter 15, which is entitled Con Takes Center Stage. And of course, I'm talking about the giant advertising meeting in France every year. It's set up in the book as the prom everybody wants to be at. And it's another fun meeting substrate that uh, Michael Kassan has really helped juice up. And we find Kassan heading to this party at the Hotel du Cap in Cannes. Oletta says it's the most coveted ticket in Cannes. And then we kind of get into a discussion about how, like the Consumer Electronics Show, this is the place to have meetings. And, and an interesting insight into Michael Kassan's business model. Apparently, there is a CEO. He's about to get fired. And he pays Kassan to arrange a meeting with a bunch of A-list players so that he can spin his own departure, which is an interesting insight into exactly what, how deep Michael Kassan's hooks go. Again, a really interesting story, but kind of, you know, a lot is left to be sifted through by the reader, not really. In a lot of ways, that incident speaks for itself, but there's just no sort of commentary around it, or the commentary around it is unsatisfying, and, and feels like it could be hooked together with other incidents to provide a clearer picture. So then we get into the history of cons. This guy, Bob Greenberg, who we'll meet later of a advertising agency called r slash GA, has been going for 30 years. We get into the con business model, and this is where Aletta is doing some worthwhile work. It turns out that Khan is actually owned by a, a meeting company out of the United Kingdom called Essential Holdings. And it provides, its larger businesses providing economic information and analysis to their clients. And the way that they monetize Khan is through, of course, the admission price, plus the, <laughs> the, the, the very steep fees for entering the awards competitions, fees for sponsorship, access to archive content produced there, and some other deals like parking fees for yachts. And in the end of the day, they make about $60 million off the con meeting. Then there's some meditations on how much advertising has changed. For instance, interesting factoid, now eight of the 10 biggest ad agencies at con aren't even ad agencies at all. Again, something that probably belonged with some information earlier in the book and, and turned into a much more thought through and satisfying review of the situation. But doesn't really go anywhere. And then we kind of get into Keith Weed and purpose-driven marketing. And here it's just kind of, this is an oper- this is an example of patent nonsense making its way into the book. So at the beginning of the Keith Weed passage, we learn that purpose marketing is really coming to the fore. And you want the brand to have a reason to exist in the world and to be trying to do good in the world beyond just making money, which depending on the brand, I agree with. And it's presented as this amazing new thing. Well, then later in the exact same passage, we learn that Pampers has been doing this since the 1990s. So this is a really good example of how the book undercuts its own authority by making a claim at one point and then undercutting itself by saying, well, it's been around since forever. And so what's no discussion of really what's changed or, and it's kind of unsatisfying. So then we get into some criticisms of Khan, the unprofessional behavior. I think we've all known that this creative director who doesn't realize he's 50 and that passing out on the beach when you're 50 looks a whole lot different than passing out on the beach when you're 25. Well, apparently that guy goes to con a lot. Then there's some some complaining about the cost, which is led by Martin Sorrell. But that prize is coveted. And quite accurately, Aletta says of the con lion that in a world where creativity, quote unquote, is valued one of the last bastions of advertising agencies, right? They lay claim to creativity. The con line is a great badge to wear. Let everyone know you're creative, right? And then we learn that cons is also the perfect place to show off the value of MediaLink because, of course, MediaLink is so intimately 
involved in making Khan valuable. And sure enough, we learn Michael Kassan is looking for a buyer. And then comes the drama of whether MediaLink is a real thing. Is it just Michael Kassan or is it a real team or is it a real business there? And whether Kassan's brush with the law will be a deal breaker. I think he was, Aletta was trying to gin up the drama with that last remark because I don't, I, I can't recall a situation in which somebody's criminal or quasi-criminal past made it difficult for them to do a business deal. I mean, it wasn't like Kassan was debarred from the industry or anything like that. I mean, he's legally allowed to be doing business, so what's the problem? So from there, we get to chapter 16, which is called Mad Men to Math Men, and it's really about the rise of big data. So we meet a guy named Dag Kitlaus, who is the inventor of Alexa, which is the closest thing we have to the ad singularity. And by ad singularity, I just mean computers getting so smart and surveilling us so thoroughly that they're able to tell what we want almost before we want it. We all become open books with our every desire known and catered to. Now, T.C. Boyle just wrote a great piece in The New Yorker, great fiction piece about this, so I'm going to link to that in the show notes along with a whole bunch of other stuff, and you can read about what the ad singularity might be like for yourself. But basically, it threatens the whole raison d'etre of advertising. We've taken the, the movement of commercial messaging from trying to get someone's attention to intersecting with someone's attention in a way that's sort of not accidental, which is completely methodical and totally removes the need for any kind of what we call creative frosting. It's just pure information that's delivered at the right time. We learned some interesting stuff about what's going on in the digital ad space at the moment. For instance, the, the idea of value CPMs, where now, because you can follow people around the internet and build lookalike populations, you can buy space on websites where high-value people are going, where the space itself is not actually that expensive. So it's, it's a little bit like junk bond. You can find high value by looking for places where the market is not accurately valuing the transaction. The only way you can do that is with this enormous tracking ability on the one hand that's available to people in the digital space and computing power. And then we run into this, the creative repost to this. Basically, creativity is more necessary than ever because there are so many ads, which, you know, again, I, I struggle to understand why he would put that in there unless it's to just show the complete cluelessness of creatives which I think is not even fair. I think a lot of creatives understand what the ad singularity is. Most people get that. So I thought it was a bit of a cheap shot. But also, if it's not a cheap shot, it's a real, you know, inside the castle versus outside the castle. Inside the castle, people clearly have no idea what's going on because the person quoted was quite senior, seemingly. I never heard of them, but quite senior person. And if you're looking at the ad singularity and you're saying, well, creative is going to be more important than ever because there's going to be more advertising, you've completely missed the point. Then we get into an interesting connection with the word experience. You guys may remember in Andrew Essex's book, he was all about the better creative through experience. And I didn't really, I don't really think much of the way he set that up. But in this book, in chapter 16, Rashid Tabakawala shows up and starts talking about this Walgreens app, which is essentially a service. Walgreens has created this very well thought out and effective app. And, you know, Tabakawala points at it and says, see, this is a brand experience, which I think is actually a poor word. I, I mean, they're saying experience because they don't want to, I don't know why they're saying experience. I think a better word for this is service. Walgreens is essentially doing a value-added service for you when you come to work with Walgreens app. It's better than the city bike phenomenon in, in that it's a lot closer to the commercial nexus between you and Walgreens. The city bank, the city bike experience is, it's got a very tenuous connection to the 
commercial nexus between the consumer, say the city bike rider, and Citibank itself. Tobacco Walla, who really has a lot of great things to say in this book, again, just sort of shows up, makes a comment, leaves. And then we kind of come to the real problem with digital, which again appeared in an earlier chapter, is auditing. There's no way you can really trust that digital is doing, at the moment, that digital is doing what they say they're doing. And then there's another very cogent objection to the ad singularity, which is the clumsiness of algorithms. Algorithms can be wrong. In a commercial context where people are talking about the algorithms, I think a good thing to do is to open up the hood of that algorithm and really understand how it is making the decisions that it's making. So in Frenemies, for instance, they tell an example of somebody going on an Alcoholics Anonymous website and then doing some work on alcoholism and then an insurance company buying that data, concluding you're an alcoholic, and then raising your insurance rates. Good example of how an algorithm can be wrong. You really need to make sure that that algorithm is a well-thought-through algorithm. They're not all created equal. And then there's an interesting, there's an interesting passage uh, from a woman named Kathy O'Neill who shows how big data can reinforce bad cycles. For instance, unfairly typecasting people. And you're left at the end of this thinking, aren't we all a little better off for being mysterious? Because in being mysterious, we have an opportunity to be better. We're, our past is not following us around and making everybody expect less of us. There is something sort of depressing and devaluing about poorly constructed algorithms. Then there's another moment in the chapter where we see that no one knows what's up. Carolyn Everson's quote about machines not being able to do strategy is just optimism and ignorance. Here's the passage from the book. Because she works with advertisers and agencies and publishers and not in the bowels of Facebook's machines, Carolyn Everson straddles the worlds of madmen and mathmen. Quote, a machine can't come up with a strategy, she says. A machine can't come up with a creative idea. A machine can execute. Machines can help us organize. But this business is still a relationship business. The passage continues, and then it ends with another Everson quote. I have been very vocal internally that marketing is an art as well as a science, unquote. With mobile, the science improves. The data collected improves. Quote again. But the art, I would argue, becomes more important because in a mobile world, consumers have more choices. Marketers have to earn the attention of consumers. It's a brave quote. It's a great attitude. But I don't see why it has to be true, especially when you see things now like AI painting pictures of human faces that are indistinguishable from regular human faces. How exactly does the special human something set us apart from an algorithm? And fair enough. Facebook hired human beings to look for offensive content, which you think would be something that an algorithm could do. So Everson was proven right in the short term. But here, I think this is the place to say that that's just a short-term win, not back when we were talking about the place of television and the, and the strength of the 2016 upfronts. So that's Math Men to Mad Men. Again, another chapter that I think could have been a lot better, but one of the things that comes shining through is that nobody that Aletta is talking to seems to know what the hell to do. And uh, I actually think in a weird way, it's a a really good portrait about what's going on in the C-suite of marketing and advertising firms right now, at least some marketing and advertising firms. And so when you're in pitches one of the things you should feel enthusiastic and optimistic about is the people you're going up against may have no idea what is happening because it's pretty clear that there are some very senior people that are allowing or giving Kenaletta quotes that are not terribly impressive. So then we move on to chapter 17, Dinosaurs or Cockroaches. And this chapter is all about how agencies are going to reinvent themselves. So it starts with a little vignette about the incredible backbiting and maneuvering 
over the AT&T agency review in you know the 2015 timeframe when this book takes place. After a lot of fighting, AT&T finally decides to go with Omnicom with a media lead agency and a creative agency. So Aletta says, you know, for the first time, this media agency and creative ad agency link up appeared in the world, which is odd because earlier in the book, he did a really good job about talking about the old ad agency business model, right? The 17.5 and 15% model where they were buying media. I was flummoxed by this uh, quote. And I thought to myself, really, what does he mean? Since like 1960 or what did, did he... What the hell? Here's another example of it feeling like a first draft. I just, I feel like if, you know, read it a few more times, it would have been like, wait a minute, I got to, you know, reconcile these two statements. You know, then we kind of get into like our smaller shops, the, the answer. And maybe, you know, again, they go, those get you out of the holding company problem. And then we have this Rashid Tabakawala quote, which rarely for Rashid Tabakawala is kind of nonsensical, which is he says, agencies are ugly and no one wants to see us, but cockroaches are survivors and agencies are survivors, which is pure optimism. I read the quote many times, and I, I don't understand why he says that, and I don't understand why agencies are cockroaches. Why are agencies uniquely suited to survive these cataclysmic times? I don't, why is that metaphor accurate? Otherwise, it just sounds like a bumper sticker. So then we meet Bob Greenberg and an agency called R slash GA, or I'll just call them RGA, who we learn are committed to building a new model. But the alert reader will remember Bob Greenberg from a previous chapter. Bob Greenberg's been going to con for 30 years. So is Bob Greenberg really the outsider? But Greenberg says, we're a company for the connected age, not an ad agency. We're a digital agency and a tech agency. But my takeaway from the chapter was it was really hard to see what else was different about the business model. They make software and they do a little investing. They do some incubating. They do some consulting. They do some office design. But it just feels like a bunch of businesses that are cobbled together. It doesn't feel like a business that's cracked the code of delivering commercial messages through the, through the informational ether. It, 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 sounds like, it sounds like they just got into a bunch of different businesses and now they're, you know. And maybe that's not the case, but that's what I took away from the, the chapter. I think the takeaway from the last two chapters, chapter 16 and chapter 17, is really Nobody knows what to do. I didn't encounter a single senior manager in either of these two chapters that really made me go, yep, that guy, that's the guy I want to be watching because he's going to solve it. Very disturbing. Okay, then we get to chapter 18, goodbye to the old advertising axioms. And we we meet Jeremy Bullmore, who we met in the first half of this book. He's Martin Sorrell's kind of like Eminence Grease of the agency world. He writes a column about advertising. He's offered up here as a link to the past. And he tells a story about meeting a friend in front of a restaurant and the friend has an Aston Martin and the friend tells him, I bought this because of an ad. And Bullmore says, really, which ad? And he says, an ad I saw when I was 12. And of course, this guy's, you know, whatever, 55 plus. It's kind of a beautiful moment. We sort of think about, ah, oh, yeah, you know what? Advertising really is about the long game in a lot of ways. Really great. And then we get into Trump. And how his win shook the advertising establishment, just like every other establishment. It runs through the ways they can change to sort of in the light of the the Trump win. The huge problem is if advertising is so effective, how is it that Hillary Clinton spent so much on advertising and still lost? Again, I think that's such an inside the castle view. I mean, she lost for a whole variety of reasons, not least of which was her complete lack of credibility and an extremely effective job that was done using the alternative media. And I'm not talking about Facebook bots and Russians. I'm talking about legitimate, authentic American voices in the alt media that were very skeptical of her and did a very effective job of rallying opposition to her. They make 
zero appearance in this chapter, and it is an unforgivable lapse on the part of Kenaletta. Then we kind of get into all the ways advertising agencies can change. We need to do more critical treatment of data because, of course, Nate Silver was wrong. So, I mean, everybody said she was going to win and she didn't. So let's all sharpen our pencils and do the math again. Fair enough. Cause marketing. Okay. Fair enough. And then solutions for some cultural content creators. So the people like the New Yorker, right? Kenaletta's uh, other job, including subscriptions and you know, here's a crisis of the establishment too. We've had the BuzzFeed and the and the Vice layoff since, and I'm going to link to the show notes to some alt media people doing BuzzFeed and Vice layoff commentary, which is very, very enlightening. I really, really think you should watch those. And they are going to radically smaller operations. I think Tim Pool would have been a really great guy to talk to. Tragically left out of this book. But really, at this point, we we get to the existential crisis of the establishment. And the question Aletta is asking himself, and and I think a lot of people in advertising and media establishment are asking themselves, have we lost the consumer? Will the consumer simply turn away from both the large media properties and the advertising that lives in those large media properties? Now, that's a scary question. And that's what I mean when I say Aletta deserves a lot of credit for this book. He is doing the big thinking. That is really the question. I think where he falls down is the execution of this. He could have talked to Tim Poole. He could have talked to, he could have held his nose and gone and talked to Alex Jones. And you can hate InfoWars all you want. You're welcome to hate InfoWars, but you cannot deny they have a viable model. This war between the establishment media and the alt media is real. Nowhere is it addressed in this book. We also don't talk about memes as a new creative. I love going on Reddit and looking at the memes. They, I laugh my ass off. I think they are some of the best communications art going right now. And the second somebody turns, figures out how to turn that into advertising, I think they're going to be, they're going to be doing well. And they're, and they're even starting to appear like Drake, I like this, I hate that meme. That's been appearing in commercial graphic design. So there's a whole way of communicating and a whole way of being in the world that's, that's out there. Doesn't appear in this book anywhere. And finally, you know, looking at all that, there may not be a way to make big concentrated money out of this new world. It's so decentralized that you, you sort of struggle to come up with a way to make an Omnicom or a WPP live in that world. And is that the real crisis? And then we're back to the beginning. And to be fair, that's the, the question Kenaletta sent out to ask. It's just he never left the castle. He needed to go outside the castle and talk to the barbarians, who are pretty fun guys, by the way. They're, they're a lot of fun to talk to. So finally, we get to chapter 19, which is no rearview mirror, which is Michael Kassan basically sells MediaLink to the guys that run Khan. That's essential holdings. And I, I really didn't think there was any value to this chapter whatsoever. I'm glad for Michael Kassan, I guess. He, he doesn't have a rearview mirror anymore. The reason the chapter's titled that is because Kassan tells the story about skiing in Deer Valley, where he realizes he's not looking in the rearview mirror. By which he means, I think, that he doesn't, he's not watching his back all the time, worried somebody's going to come and take everything away from him because, I guess, because of this thing with El Pollo Loco, right? His, his little financial impropriety that got him suspended from the bar. Okay, well, happy for Michael Kassan. It's a terrible thing to be looking over your shoulder. But on the other hand, it's an opportunity to reflect back on the book and say to yourself, well, Michael Kassan, I mean, you've kind of lived your life in such a way that you, you kind of, a, a rational person would look over their shoulder. So very ambivalent figure, Kassan. And I also found myself wondering, like, what else is he looking over his shoulder about, you know? Because his, his approach to conflict of interest, no conflict, no interest. I mean, read the book and, and make your own decision about Michael Kassan. 
I guess I'll say I was impressed in spite of myself. I think it really drags. Second half really drags. Um, there's a whole sector missing. That's the alt media. Kassan, eh, sympathetic guy. Maybe I've read it too many times, but I think the ledger domain comment that we talked about in the first podcast really applies here, and it stuck with me. You know, he aud- he offered to audit his own clients, which I think is just crazy. He seems to be a yes man. There's a there's a story in the book about him meeting with the head of AT and T, and his phone rings, and he brings it out, and it's a Verizon phone, and the, and the the executive says, "Is that a Verizon phone?" And he throws it on the ground, and then says, "Excuse me, was there a question?" And I don't know. That's just kind of sycophantic behavior is uh, hard to respect, I guess. Especially since, just to dig into that story a little bit more, there was a valid reason for having a Verizon phone, which later came out. Is Here's a guy who's willing to change himself radically and just sort of like cut any tie in order to get you to like him. Which, you know, I don't know, it's kind of hard to, hard to respect a guy like that. He ends up selling to Essential. And then we hear this weird story about him not, you know, looking in the rearview mirror thing. And then the book just kind of ends, and you're sort of left wondering, what what is this chapter for? I, I actually ended up thinking maybe Aletta's trying to say the smart money's getting out of advertising as fast as it can. Just to finish up, I don't think Woodward, you know, at the end of the day, you got to look at the Tim Pool quote. Of course, I meant to say Tim Wu on the cover about Ken Aletta being the Bob Woodward of the media world, and really wonder if Tim Wu wasn't being a little bit sly, because this is such an inside the castle view. So net-net, I think it's worth a read. It could have been a lot better organized. And I think it would have had more credibility if you'd relied on more viewpoints. Like I said, the alt-media. But also, maybe talk to somebody from Google. Yeah, I get it. You want to switch it up. But come on. There's also such a thing as having indispensable voices. And I think, like the alt-media, an indispensable voice in this book is Google. So I have to say, I don't think it was a well-executed book. but. It does ask the right question. Aletta started out asking the right question, and for that, he deserves a ton of credit. So, Ken Aletta, great idea. I'm sure it looked good on screen, buddy, but I don't think this is a terribly good book, and uh, I wish I could recommend buying it. I just can't. You should go to the local library and check it out. Congratulations, you just got out of study hall. I want to thank Henry Peloso for the music and say sorry about the editing. Study Hall is sponsored by Douglas and Rundle, advertising and marketing consultancy. See you next time.